welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to find them or pull them out and um, turn them on, power them up. We're going to be in Acts 17. Um, my name is Micah, if we haven't met. So glad that you're here. I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken and um, excited that you're here. Um, before we jump into the text, I'll just uh, say one thing. I wanted to make this announcement because uh, we didn't get it in the slides. That's on me. But a friend of mine uh, named Dominique is, has written a book called Rethinking Incarceration. And uh, he's a covenant pastor, um, works for the covenant in Chicago, and just a fantastic guy. Uh, and he wrote this book really kind of challenging the, the, the narrative or the, the reality of mass incarceration in our country and asked some really, I think, provocative questions about why that's the case and what the church um, can and do in response to that. And so on May 14th, a Monday night, um, Dom is in, in town, and Crosstown Covenant is hosting a night where he's going to be talking about this book. And I think for anyone who's interested in this topic or topics like it, um, it's going to be really, really good. Uh, so May 14th, 7 o'clock, Crosstown Covenant, and commercials are now over. <laughs> Act 17. Um, I planted this church eight years ago, and so when you start a church in the covenant denomination, um, it's in partnership with a group of people and a number of parties. Um, one of the things that you have to do when you start a new church is you fill out these monthly reports. Now, to the church planters in the covenant, who I just got to see this weekend, um, these are, well, for some, they are the bane of our existence. Um, Many, of, many people who plant churches, they don't do details well, and so you've got to fill out these reports every single month, right? Uh, and so there's the detail part of it, but then there's a bunch of questions that they ask you. And it's, uh, it's good. Like, these are good things. It should happen. But, you know, how are you doing? Like, how's your soul? How's your spiritual life? Are you filled up as a leader? Are you depleted? How's your marriage? How's your family? And then how's the church? Like, how's the church doing? And there's a number of metrics or, you know, this dashboard of metrics that the, the covenant, like, wants to know about in terms of how we measure uh, the fruitfulness of a ministry. And one of the questions that I always just, like, yeah, wasn't sure how to respond was, like, um, how many people have um, made professions of faith, right? The sort of classic language is, like, how many conversions have happened at your church in the last month? And I always bristled at that question and I got to be honest, friends, I always felt really bad. I felt guilty because I, I didn't feel like that's not, um, I'm, there are some people who are gifted evangelists, and I, I've met them, I know them. Some of them are actually uh, a part of this church, one I can think of in particular, Isa, um, just gifted in this area, and often find themselves in conversations where people, they're talking about spiritual things. And I just like, ah, can I, can, does anybody else feel like, Am I tracking? Okay, a few of you in the room. All right. So I'm with some of my friends this weekend at uh, this Covenant um, Conference annual meeting. So we're a part of the Northwest Conference. There are 11 different conferences in the Covenant. And I'm with my friends out there. I represent you guys at this annual meeting. And you can say thank you later that uh, you didn't have to go. Lots of, a lot of it is really, really good. And I'm, I'm really glad to go. But it is a business meeting. So it's a lot of budget presentations and really fun. A lot of Facebook surfing, a lot of Facebook happening. But I'm there to support my friend Steve. And Steve's getting ordained this year. And I was just so proud of him. And it, it, when people get ordained, uh, they have like a few minutes at the annual meeting and they share their testimony, like how they sort of came into ministry and decided to be a pastor. And so Steve is sharing and he starts with, 
I'm an evangelist. And I'm sitting in the back going, no, you're not. <laughs> like, Laura and I have sat with Steve and Mary, his wife, and heard them talk about, like, we, we share this dissonance with this word evangelism. And, like, he's always, he has the same t- hard time, maybe even worse, filling out these reports, which I don't have to do anymore. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. He reigns. But Steve does. And so every month he's like, how many people? And he's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's what he writes every month. So he starts and he's like, I'm an evangelist. And I'm like, no, you're not. And then he says this. I'm an evangelist, but not to people who have never heard about God, but rather to those who have almost given up on God. And I was like, that's it. That's how I feel. That's how I've always felt at Awaken. Like this group of people, if you're new to this church, the the single most common story that I hear about people at Awaken, when they come and they sit down with me and I talk and they share their story is, this was the last stop on my way out the door of Christian faith. And for whatever reason, this group of people in this community has become a place where asking honest questions about matters of faith is okay. And people aren't run out of church or told to be quiet when they ask honest questions. And so the people who have gathered in this place have had similar experiences. Steve said, I'm I'm an evangelist to people who not haven't heard about God, but who've almost given up on God and have had experiences of hurt or trauma or disillusionment with the church like I have had. And I was like, oh my gosh, brother, you are speaking my language. And I started thinking about you all and how grateful I am for this community and for the space that we've tried to create collectively where we can ask hard questions about serious matters. And one of the things that we've talked about, and we've come back to this one over and over again, we're going to come back to it again today, and it's evangelism. Because for me, and I'll speak for myself, I don't want to speak for you, this one has stood in the center of of the ideas that I've wanted to ask questions about and critique and say, is there another way to think about this? The pressure that I've always felt about evangelism and what it means to share your faith with somebody and the assumptions or the the things that I think I'm supposed to do that I'm not doing, um, I want to talk about that again today because this passage we're going to study in Acts 17 is kind of the quintessential, one of the sort of hallmark passages in the Bible that talks about evangelism and apologetics. And in the brief time we have left, I want to just pull a couple of threads, and I want to try to offer some hope for any of you who've ever felt like, I don't know how to even think about this idea, or if you're not sure about faith or Christianity, and you've had bad experiences with evangelists or people who are supposed to be evangelizing, maybe they've had bullhorns or signs or any number of things, I want to try to offer another perspective on that this morning. Are you with me on that? So let's, uh, if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to be in Acts uh, 17. We'll start in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I have walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant to the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Then, or the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of, the heaven, of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, and they should 
that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul's quoting an Athenian poet right there. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an, an image made by human design and skill. For in the past, God overlooked such, such ignorance, but now commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn around. For he, has set a new, or, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof to, this ver- to, this, uh, to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demarius, and a a number of others. Pray with me if you would. God, this morning, as we take just a few moments to turn to your word, uh, first I'd say thank you. Thank you for the gift of this Uh, this testimony uh, of these people who attempted to follow you amidst all kinds of uh, changing landscapes of culture and time. Thank you for uh, the story that's been preserved and the way in which it continues to bring life and fruit. And so I pray that that would be the case for us today, that it would challenge us and maybe even change us to think about things differently and to see you for who you are. God, whatever images we've brought into this place today that are not accurate and don't represent who you are in truth, I pray they would melt away and that what would remain is the truth about you. I pray in the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. You can be seated. Acts 17, this passage is like the shining example. It's held up by many as... um, the sort of seminal text or one of the stories in the Bible about evangelism or this idea of apologetics, the defense of one's faith. I was in ninth grade. I went to Chicago for this evangelism training seminar. In the mornings, they sent you to apologetics class where you heard and you learned about how to defend your faith. And this passage was one of the passages that they used to teach us this, right? So among Christians, Acts 17 is one of the big ones. Now here's what I find absolutely fascinating about this. There's something missing. When Paul speaks, they ask him some questions. They're like, we hear you talking about this idea, this uh, Messiah thing, um, resurrection, and just before where we picked up, they ask him, like, tell us about it. And so Paul begins to speak. And there's something missing from this passage That's held up as like the prime example of evangelism. Did anybody notice what it is? Jesus. (laughs) I love it. So ironic. In one of like the central passages about evangelism, Paul never says the name Jesus. Which begs some questions. How do you tell the story about God and God's work in the world and not mention the name Jesus? 
a few weeks, uh, actually a few months ago, I had a conversation with a family, um, the wife of a husband and wife who had been coming to Awaken and they decided that they were going to leave Awaken for a number of reasons. But they gave me the great gift as the pastor at Awaken to actually sit down and have coffee with them. And I said, so just tell me about your experience. Like what's been missing or what have you found difficult or what hasn't landed or what have you heard that's bothered you? That was a huge gift, BT Dubs. For any of you who have ever left a church before or who may leave a church in the future, don't just leave, please, because people don't know what they don't know. You know what I'm saying? A huge gift to me is just to learn, like, how did you experience this community? And maybe there were things where I'll say, you know what? It, this may not be the church for you, and that's okay. But there may be some things where I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that you experienced it that way. I'm so sorry. Just a great opportunity. That's free. So we sit down, we're talking, and I said, so tell me, like, um, why are you leaving? And she said, um, one of the reasons that we've decided not to call Awaken Home anymore is the series that you do in the summer called Lost in Translation. In Lost in Translation, we take, like, really difficult passages in the Bible, and we try to make sense of them. So it's often Old Testament, because there are a lot of really bizarre and crazy passages in the Old Testament. Can I get an amen, Preacher Micah? And so we just wrestle with those. And she said, for six weeks last summer, during Lost in Translation, you never mentioned Jesus once. And I said to her, did you know that this, one of the passages in the Bible that we talk about as like the center, the, the pinnacle of evangelism, Paul never mentions Jesus? I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're like, man, Micah, not a good idea. No, I didn't say that. I didn't think that would bear any fruit. And I listened and I said, oh, I'm so sorry that that was your experience. But here's a question for us. Paul never says Jesus' name in his response to tell us about God's work in the world in this Messiah. If you couldn't use the Bible to legitimate the claims that you're making, or you couldn't say the name Jesus, could you still invite someone who was interested to move towards the divine in such a way that it would make a significant, hi, Jonathan, and meaningful. Could you, could you talk about it in such a way that that person could make a move towards the divine in a significant and meaningful way that would bear fruit in their lives and in the lives of those around them? Could you do it without saying, because the Bible says so, or because of this guy named Jesus? Which is a fascinating question in a sermon about evangelism. Could you evangelize without saying Jesus? Could you talk about God in such a way that it made sense to the people you were talking to who maybe don't talk about the kingdom of God or the lordship of Jesus while they're sitting at their work filling out TPS reports? Paul knows his audience. He knows the people that he's speaking to, and he translates the message of the good news about God's work in the world, centered in Jesus, absolutely, but he tells the story in such a way that he doesn't even need to use the name Jesus. Tim Keller, who's a, uh, an author and a former pastor, says, most Christian speaking and preaching still assumes the listeners have the same fundamental understandings of, the rea and of reality that they had in the past. Why is this quote important? For many of us who live where we live, I'm assuming most of you live 
in America in the 21st century, and you're familiar with the church. Um, one guy named Brian McLaren wrote a book called The Church on the Other Side. And he talks about this transition that we are experiencing in our culture, this shift from a modern era where there are certain assumptions and presuppositions and language that we use to a postmodern era. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't really care what you think about postmodernism, whether you like it, or you think it's great, or you think it's the devil incarnate. It doesn't matter. McLaren's point is, for a church on the other side of this shift, who's used a certain kind of language to tell the story of Jesus for 400 to 500 years, what does it mean to tell the story in a new world? With a new language. He argues that one of the things that the church will have to do to, be, to have a hearing in the world is to tell the story of the good news of God in a new language. Missionaries do this all the time, right? If we're going to send a missionary from Sweden to the Congo, they speak Sweden, Swedish in Sweden, and they speak French or Swahili or a number of other dialects. If we're going to send them, they're going to have to learn how, they're going to have to learn a new language. Because you can't continue to tell the story in Swedish to a bunch of people who don't understand Swedish. McLaren's whole point is, the church had better listen and better figure it out quickly, or it's going to die a slow and miserable death in some ways in our country. Can you, or will you, will we as the church, pay attention to the people around us and the world that we live in and the ways in which they don't respond to the gospel as told previously. Said differently, church, are you willing to press into culture and the world that we live in in such a way that you know the people that you work with and that you live with and that go to your family reunions and that go to your schools so much so that if you needed to tell the story of God in a new and fresh way, you could do it. Paul never uses the name Jesus in his whole... Now, you could argue, pause, if Paul went to the Areopagus and he actually had a hearing at Mars Hill with all of these people, he probably would have said more than what is captured in here, and maybe he did say the name Jesus. Fair enough. As Luke records it, Paul never uses the name Jesus. Can you... Do you know the story of God well enough to be able to translate it to a new and fresh way, or in a new and fresh way, to a new world that we might live in? There's a guy named Michael Frost who wrote a book called Five Habits of Missional People, and he talks about Christians who lived questionable lives. What he means by that is they lived their lives in such a way that people who saw them asked questions about them. Why did they do that? The fourth century, uh, in the 4th century, there was a Roman emperor named Julian. And Julian is on record writing about the Christians in, in Rome. Frost quote, writes, and he says, They, the Christians, devoted themselves to sacrificial acts of kindness. They loved their enemies and they forgave their persecutors. They cared for the poor. They fed the hungry. In the brutality of life under Roman rule, they were the most stunningly different people anyone had ever seen. They preached, they spoke the gospel with the very lives that they lived. The emperor is quoted and he says, Why do we not observe that, this, that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, their holiness of their lives uh, that, that have done the most to increase this belief? 
I believe that we, the Roman Empire, really and truly ought to appreciate and practice every one of these virtues. Culture and empire was taking cues from the church. That's evangelism. That's living out the gospel in such a way that it makes a difference in the world that you live in. They figured out a way to tell the good news of God by the very lives that they lived. Paul, in his address to the Athenians, tells the story of God without even using the name Jesus for the church today. In our culture and in our context, what are the new ways and the new language, the new ideas, the new uh, articulations of the good news of God that we must learn to tell the story of Jesus in our day and in our age? That's a challenge for us as the people of God. To those of you who maybe are here and aren't convinced of this story, I hope that you're at least appreciative of somebody trying to like tweak and challenge and give like a group of people reason to think critically about how to tell this story in different ways instead of the classic ones with bullhorns and signs. Which leads me to my second point that I want to make and my final one, and that is that Paul, he just finds common ground. Like the the text that we hold up as like the central idea of how to tell the story of God and Jesus, what does Paul do? He just finds common ground with people. What he doesn't do is pick a fight. Which is what the church and evangelists or evangelism is often a picture of, right? Where people pick fights and point out all the things that they disagree with about whoever it is that they're talking to. That doesn't work. So can we stop doing that and do it in a different way? Paul. So let's take some cues from Paul. Multiple people in Paul's audience. There were Athenians, Greeks, there were Jews, there were Stoics and Epicureans. Stoics and Epicureans are philosophers of his day. Paul finds common ground with every single group in this small little portion that we read. To the Jews in the midst, he critiques idols and temples and those things built by hands in this belief that God dwells in them, which would have been classic Jewish thought, that God does not dwell in the temples. These are structures that we use and that gather us together, but these temples built by hands are not the, the dwelling of the divine. The Jews in the room would have been like, praise and amen, Paul, preach it, brother. He finds common ground with them. He finds some place that they can come together before he offers any critique. Paul does offer critique for sure, but not before he affirms and he builds common ground. It's relational in his efforts. With the Athenians and the Greeks, Plato, who you probably are familiar with, um, there's this idea of the academy in the ancient world. And in the academy, there was a belief that God really, there wasn't enough evidence to say definitively that you can know or that God exists. Or, and even if God does, what God requires of us. So this is commonplace in Greek thought, which is why there's an altar to an unknown God. Paul comes towards the Greeks and the Athenians and says, I see you've built an altar to an unknown God. And I affirm the fact that for a long time, Maybe the revelation of God was not complete, but he says essentially that period of time is over. And now a new day has dawned when the revelation of God is complete in this person that he doesn't use the name of. But he comes towards them first before he critiques, before he offers any thought that's different than theirs. To the, Epic, uh, the, the, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, he does the same thing. He moves towards them relationally before he ever critiques anything that they say or believe. The point being, church, to those of you that are convinced of this message, pressure off. If you feel like 
You don't have the gift of evangelism, which some people do, I would argue. Some people don't. But to all the rest of us in the room, 1 Peter 3 says, always be ready to give reason for the hope you have. So for all the rest of you, pressure off. Can you just find common ground with people? Can you go to your workplace and look for the things that are consistent with what you believe about God, the, 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 the notes or the, the blips that you see in people's lives that are consistent with what we know to be true about God from the text, can you find those things and just find common ground and move towards those as a way of making the story and the news about Jesus winsome? Paul says, don't add offense to the gospel. It's already offensive enough. Just find common ground. So some of you don't know this, but um, on Monday nights, I, uh, once or twice a month, there's a little cocktail lounge in Minneapolis that a friend of mine uh, invited me to come and bartend at. So every, every month, about once or twice, your pastor is over in northeast Minneapolis slinging cocktails at the break room. Now I'm sitting there, last Monday night, I'm working, and I meet all kinds of fascinating people, as you might imagine, uh, when you bartend. And so one of the people that I work with they're asking, like, oh, why are you going to be gone all summer? And I was like, oh, well, I'm going on a sabbatical. Well, what's a sabbatical? So I tell them about a sabbatical, why it's important. Why it's important that we rest and that we don't, like, work ourselves to the bone. Why? Because that's just, like, good human behavior. And, by the way, it's actually in the text. You may not know that. I didn't say all that. Uh, so she says, you're going to the Camino? Unbelievable! I have always wanted to go to the Camino and walk the Camino in Spain. There's like this spiritual energy around this trail, and humans have been walking it for thousands of years. And so she starts talking about the Camino, and then she begins to tell me about this, her like childhood. When she was young, and she was in like junior high, high school, was dating this boy in this church experience, that, or this church that she went to, had this really unfortunate um, experience with this boy, and uh, was very hurt by it, and kind of brought that to the attention of the leaders in the church, and this kid happened to be one of the pastor's kids. They're always the worst. <laughs> Lord have mercy on all those kids out there. And the whole church and the pastors and the leadership, they all took the side of this, this boy. And she was kind of like ostracized from the church. Ended up leaving and has never come back. And she's telling me about this as because of the Camino. And so I say, well, let me... Here, I got a tract. The Romans Road. No. I said, do you listen to podcasts? She's like, oh, I love podcasts. I said, tell you what, there's a podcast. It's called The Robcast, a very uncreative name, where he interviews a guy named Alexander Shia who's walked the Camino and leads trips to the Camino. And he talks about how people have these amazing spiritual experiences when they walk the Camino. I think you would love it. And she's like, I would, and she takes out her phone, and she types it in there, and she's like, saves it, she's like, I'm going to listen to it. Can you do that? Can you just bear witness to the things that are true in the world? Can you find common ground with people? It's not really that difficult. Anybody who has like a generous spirit can do it. And I think if the church should be noted for anything, it's a generous spirit, Amen. So to all of you who have ever felt like, I can't do this, I am not an evangelist. Evangelism makes my skin crawl and I get hives and I start itching. Pressure off. Can you just find common ground with people? And I'll close with this analogy. Sometimes people talk about spiritual things and um, like with the metaphor of music. 
They say that music is the language of the soul, that it transcends everything. It transcends race and culture and ethnicity, and no matter what time period you lived in, music touches humans. C.S. Lewis in the book uh, The Magician's Nephew writes about the beginning of the world, and Aslan, when he creates the world, sings the world into existence. He posits the idea that right now, all around us, that there is a divine energy and pulse like happening in creation that bears witness to the one who created it. It's like has a rhythm and a cadence and a melody and a, uh, like a key that it's being sung in. And if you think about that, and you think about all of the things that would be a part of this great symphony, things like love and justice and mercy and hope and compassion and selflessness, these are all individual notes that play. And you've been to the symphony before, right? Like everybody plays notes, and separately they all kind of don't really sound like anything, but when you put them together, oh, now you've got something that's cooking. Do you know the story of God well enough that you can hear the notes of the song being played all around us in the lives of the people that you, run in, that you run with and that you're in contact with so that you could say, oh, that note of compassion right there where you did that thing, that's, a reflect, that's in the divine song, my friends, and it's playing all around. That note right there, that selfless act that you did at work and you gave yourself at cost for the sake of someone else, that note plays all the time in the song that's playing all around us that reflects what God is really like. Do you know it well enough that you can see it and hear it when it happens and find common ground with people and just say, that note's been playing from the very beginning. So get it, like organize your life around those notes and those songs and guess what you're doing? You're participating in something bigger than yourself. Some people even call it God. And some people would say that it's, you see how this goes. So my friends who are here this morning at Awaken, who have ever felt like, I don't know if I can do this thing that I think I'm supposed to do. Deep breath. Check your pulse. Can you find common ground with people? Even people you disagree with vehemently on things that are important. Can you move towards your neighbors, your friends, your loved ones, and find common ground? And can you hear the notes of the divine song that's playing all around us as we wake up every morning? Can you hear them? Can you identify it? And can you call them out and say, that note, that thing you did, it's beautiful. I think it's a reflection of the divine. To those of you who are here this morning who aren't convinced of this talk about Jesus and the story of the Bible. I wonder if your experiences that have informed this position that you hold have anything to do with really, really bad evangelical or evangelistic experiences. And I guess I would just ask you something this morning. And I recognize it's a huge ask as a pastor. But as a community, this is what we're trying to be about. And maybe you're looking for a church or maybe you're wondering about this. Like, would you give us another shot? Would you give this group of people who maybe have represented or who have been uh, a part of something that didn't go well, would you give us a second chance? Would you give this story a second chance? A, a, a true hearing 
where you consider what's being said here and who is this guy and what was he about? And I hope and I pray that if it's true, that it will remain. Because what's true will last. And if you're looking for it with honest and authentic hearts, I believe you'll find it. So that's my encouragement to the church and to those of you who are maybe not, wouldn't self-identify with the church for your consideration. Would you pray with me? I want to give you a few moments of silence in a world that is always moving and always going. I hope this is a gift. God, as we think for just a few moments in the quietness of this room with the natural sounds we may hear of rustling and young ones blabbering and chit-chatting, I pray that you would, if you are real and you're true and you are who you say you are, that you would find us where we are and that we would experience you as love, as grace, as beauty, as delight, as wonder, as justice. Would you make known to us in these next few moments the truth about who you are? Holy Spirit, speak, I pray. Friends, would you stand as we close and receive this benediction? It's one that I spoke over the little one this morning who was dedicated and the one I'll speak over you. The same one that God invites Moses and Aaron to speak over the people of God thousands of years ago. The same one that pastors have been speaking over their people for, well, thousands of years. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Go love the world. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.